Good morning. I pray that you are, are having a good weekend. Um, if you haven't picked up that book yet on Ephesians, I would encourage you to do that. I've read my copy in Mandarin, Cantonese, and Mandarin, so take up the challenge. You can also find it in English and, and Russian. It's a great guide just to help you in your personal study of Ephesians, uh, in your small group, of course, and there's room in there for sermon notes, so it's a great place to just put all of the things related to Ephesians as we walk through this letter together. Has anyone ever come up to you and said, hey, I've just been, I've been blessed beyond belief? What comes to mind when someone says that to you? Yesterday, I was, as I was driving to the connection services in the evening, I had placed my glasses on the passenger seat, and they fell apart. So did I suddenly lose the blessing of God? Is, is blessing just circumstantial? Are we blessed if we're healthy? Are we, are we blessed if we're mortgage-free? Are we blessed if we're at the top of our class academically? Are we blessed if... We're athletically gifted and we can put the soccer ball in the net. Are we blessed if we're moving forward in our career? Or if relationships are strong? Or if we live in a country like Canada that provides a peaceful, stable environment within which to grow? Are we then blessed? All of what I've listed may be included under blessing. But is there a level of blessing that actually goes deeper? that goes beyond personal benefit, that goes beyond natural aptitude, that goes beyond favorable circumstances? Is there a blessing beyond belief that grounds us and enables us to face any life challenge, any life situation, any life circumstance with worship, with confidence, and with joy? Well, today's text will help us answer that question. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the freedom to worship you as your people. Thank you for who you are. You are an amazing God. And thank you that we have the privilege of coming together as your people to worship you, to pray, and to study your word. And again, Lord, we just ask that your Holy Spirit guide us, counsel us as we walk through this passage in Ephesians. Lord, may we come to an understanding of what it means, what it means to be your children, what it means to be your followers, what it means to live for you, to live for your glory. Your word is living and active. That word that encourages your people, that spurs them on, that edifies them, that corrects them where needed, may that word remain with your people. And may nothing I say stray from your word. And so we just entrust ourselves to you, trusting you, Jesus, to teach us. And it's in your strong name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This greeting, it includes what a greeting normally would include. The sender, the recipients, a greeting, all connected to Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's the author. He was called by Christ himself. On the road to Damascus in the year 33-34, he met the risen Christ. It changed his life and he became an apostle, a messenger of Christ Jesus. Now, 30 years later, he's in a jail cell in Rome, and he's writing a letter to the Ephesians. He says in chapter 6 of this letter, 
I'm an ambassador in chains. And he asks that the Ephesians will pray for him so that he might boldly proclaim the gospel. (coughs) He writes to the saints in Ephesus. Who are the saints? When he talks about the saints, is, is he talking about an elite group within the Ephesian church? The most spiritually mature. Who's he talking about? Well, in this letter to the Ephesians and in Paul's other letters, when he talks about the saints, he's talking about all the people that have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, all of those that have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. These are the saints. All the members of God's people are saints. They've been set apart for Jesus and his service. The saints in Ephesus are also the faithful in Christ Jesus. You see that phrase, the faithful in Christ Jesus. That phrase actually explains what it means to be saints in Ephesus. They are people that have faith in Jesus. They believe in Jesus. They are not the faithful in Jesus because of their tremendous faithfulness, because of their own reliability as they follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. No, it's because of their faith in Jesus. They are the saints. And they're in Ephesus. And so this letter is written to Ephesus, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Rome was number one, Alexandria, Antioch of Syria, and Ephesus. It was a a business center, a place of a lot of commerce. It was the busiest seaport in Western Asia. It was a banking center, a financial center, and so there were large monetary deposits in Ephesus. It was an intellectual center, an artistic center. You can still see the facade of the Celsus Library. It was the third largest library in the world. There's an amphitheater, a large amphitheater. It seats thousands of people there to this day. I remember being in one of the upper levels and a Korean woman was on the stage singing and I could hear her perfectly. The acoustics are perfect. A sophisticated place. While Paul was in Rome writing this letter, Nero, the emperor, he was renovating a huge stadium in Ephesus. It was where the Pan-Ionian Games were held, second only to the Olympic Games in Athens. It was a pluralistic setting. There were people from different parts of the world, and so the Roman gods were worshipped, the Greek gods were worshipped, there was a Jewish synagogue, there were Christians, there were different streams of thought alive in this city. There was a temple to Eros, the goddess of love. There was a temple to Nike, the goddess of victory. There was a temple to Artemis, the goddess of fertility, the embodiment of sexuality. In fact, the temple to Artemis, it They started building it in 550 BC. It took them 120 years to build it. Imagine the construction project. 120 years to build it, and it stood to 400 AD, 950 years. It was a center for the imperial cult, one of those cities honored by Rome that was permitted to have a temple to the divine Julius Caesar. And in this city, Christians were not always so welcome. Paul talks about the spiritual battles in Ephesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he says, hey, there's a wide open door for evangelism, but there are many adversaries. It was a city where statues were made to Artemis, and there was a whole economy around this. And as Paul was proclaiming the gospel, people stopped buying idols, they started destroying their statues, and there was a riot. And Paul had to leave the city. When he writes this letter, he's in chains in Rome, prisoner. The Ephesian believers go through many difficulties. There are spiritual challenges because of the practice of the, of, of the occult in this city. There are intellectual debates. There are 
people that follow Greek philosophy, different streams of Roman thought. And so the Christians are challenged in their faith. Also, as Christians, if they were tradesmen, they would not be permitted to remain in the trade guilds because being a trade guild member, you had to worship the God of that guild. And if as a Christian you stopped worshiping that God, you were ostracized, you were marginalized, you were removed. And so there are economic challenges. What will Paul write? Will he complain about his condition in Rome? Will he ask for sympathy from the Ephesians? Will he talk to the Ephesians about the difficulties they face? Listen to what he writes. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul's jail cell just becomes a sanctuary. He bursts forth in praise. He explodes with praise. From verse 3 all the way down to verse 14, it's just one long sentence. He can't stop praising God. Reminds me of Our daughter, Alana, when she was in elementary school, she would, you know, go through her day and she would learn things in class, new things, and she'd meet new friends and she'd be going through all of these life experiences and then she'd she'd come home just full and when she came through the door, her mouth would just start to motor and she'd start talking about, oh, I did this and I met this person and I learned this and he said this and she said that, just motoring and we'd say, Alana, breathe, breathe. So we're going to ask Paul to breathe a few times here. We're going to stop a few times to let what he's saying sink into our souls. It's a grammatical masterpiece. You can just feel the rhythm as you read through the text. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessed, that could be translated worthy of praise. God is to be praised. This, this sentence here is actually the title sentence of the whole paragraph. Everything flows from it. And this phrase is, is grounded in the following phrase, which says, who has blessed us in Christ. So Paul bursts into praise to the Father. God is to be ascribed honor and praise, for he is the origin and source of all our blessing. Who has blessed us in Christ? Who is us? Well, when Paul writes that, he's thinking of himself and the Ephesian believers, but by implication, it refers to us as well. All of us who are in Christ. We are God's people. What does it mean to be blessed? Well, it means to be favored. It means to be empowered. It means to be benefited. So this, Paul says, who has blessed us? It's past completed action. We have been blessed. It's not that we will be blessed in the future. We have been blessed in Christ. 
That, that phrase in Christ, it, it appears nine times in ten verses, and so we need to take note. All good things are our, ours in Christ, verses 3 and 9. In the beloved, verse 6. In him, verses 4, 7, 11, and 13. Through Jesus Christ, verse 5. So the passage emphasizes that every spiritual blessing, it comes not only through the agency of Christ, but by being united with him. All that God has done for his people and for which he is to be praised has been affected in and through Christ from eternity to eternity. Last weekend, Pastor Mike was saying that all of Scripture is God's finger pointing to Christ, and that is true. And if that is true as it is, then this passage is just a megaphone proclaiming the centrality of Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So spiritual blessing, it refers to everything that we've received through God's gracious saving purposes in Christ, all that pertains to life in the Spirit. And following this title statement in verse 3, Paul is just going to list things that we have received in Christ, like election to holiness, adoption as God's sons and daughters, redemption and forgiveness, knowledge of God's gracious plan, the gift of the Spirit, the hope of glory, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, The heavenly places, this is where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we as believers are seated with him. We are co-heirs with Christ. We are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So these gracious gifts, which Paul will list, they're not just future benefits. They're not things that we will inherit. They are ours, a present reality. They're things already won for us by God's saving action in Christ. They've been applied to us by the Spirit. That's why Paul, bound in a jail cell, can explode with praise. So the first point on your outline God the Father is to be praised for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. For blessing us with every spiritual blessing. Our mission team that went to Cuba a few weeks ago, we went to a small village. We were in a rather poor neighborhood. Our van stopped and we got out and walked into a wooden shack, which was where a house church was to meet. And so as we looked at this wooden shack, we realized that the whitewashing hadn't worked too well, that termites were eating the wood, some plastic chairs. The pastor, when he got up, he stood behind a wobbly wooden pedestal. He gets up, and you can just tell that he's full of joy, and he says, hey, we were four believers in this village. Now we're 26. 22 have come to faith. And we didn't have a place to meet. And God, he said in Spanish, God has just blessed us with this chalet. I thought, what? We complain when the words don't come up on the screen. And this house church pastor just exploding with joy. Why? How could he do that in such difficult circumstances? Well, because he understood who he was in Jesus, what he had received from Christ. 
And here were these new believers exploding with joy in a wooden shack on the outskirts of a village in Cuba because they know what they have been blessed with in Christ. Every spiritual blessing. So why will Paul rejoice? Look at verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Even as, and so the following verses, they will flesh out, they will amplify what it means to be blessed with every spiritual blessing. He chose us. Here in Ephesians, the object of God's choosing, it's us, believers. You'll remember that God chose Abraham to bless all peoples. You'll remember that God chose Israel as his treasured possession among all peoples of the earth. And here in Ephesians, we have been chosen, we've been chosen in him, in Christ. All that is involved in this choosing, in election, it depends on Jesus. It's always and only in Christ. And chosen in him before the foundation of the world, before time began as we know it. So Paul reaches back into eternity past. It says, before time began, God planned to have us as his children. While we were unholy and blameworthy, God was determined to have us as his own. It's profound. That we should be holy and blameless before him. We were elected unconditionally for the purpose of holiness. This holiness, it has a number of layers. First of all, because of Christ's perfect sacrifice for us, His blamelessness, his righteousness has been imputed to us. It has been accredited to us. Second, we can enter the presence of God, stand before him, free from the guilt of trespasses and sin because Jesus opened the way. Hallelujah. Third, we've been chosen to be a people conformed to the likeness of his son. We will be transformed into the image of his son. It will happen. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So we're to live in light of that purpose, toward that purpose. Fourth, at consummation, at the end of all things, we will stand blameless before God because of Jesus. God will accomplish his purpose in our lives, amen? That should be tremendous comfort to us, great encouragement. It will happen because God has determined it. God the Father is to be praised for choosing us for holiness in his presence. What does that mean for us? Well, we know our origin. Birthed from within the heart of God. Chosen from before the foundation of the world. We know our purpose. We've been chosen for holiness in relationship with the Father. We know our our future. It's secure in the hands of the Father. This became palpable for me a number of years ago when I was in a a temple in Kyoto, Japan, a Buddhist temple, and I was walking through that temple with a Japanese friend, and it was a temple where adherents to the Buddhist faith would go in order to connect with their former lives, trying to gain greater self-understanding, where they had come from. And as we were walking through the darkness of that temple, my Japanese friend who had come to faith in Jesus exploded with praise, and he started to sing, to God be the glory, great things he has done. Why? 
because he understood that in Jesus, he had been freed from a never-ending cycle of reincarnation, not knowing the nature of previous lives, not knowing the outcome of this life, not knowing the nature of the next life, not knowing whether he would be holy enough to progress or whether he would regress. No longer on this endless path of of reincarnation on the way to nothingness. He'd been set free. And so in Jesus, he knew where he was from. Chosen from before the foundation of the world for holiness. His origin was in the heart of God. He knew his destination. He would dwell forever in the presence of Almighty God. He was secure. And he burst forth in praise. Glory to God. Great things he has done. To him be the glory. So Paul continues. End of verse 4. In love. Verse 5, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That phrase, in love, it properly describes predestination. The verb predestined, it's always used for God in the New Testament. It amplifies our understanding of election. It means to foreordain. It means to appoint to something. It means to be marked out from beforehand for something. If you watch American college sports, then you may have watched a team called the Oklahoma Sooners. And if you have never heard that name before, it might intrigue you a bit. Like, why would any team be called the Sooners? Where does that come from? Well, in the 19th century, Oklahoma State did not exist. It was a territory. It was land that had not been marked out for ownership. And so the American government made it available, or they were making it available, and so people came from around the globe to stake out their claim on a new life. A day was set, April 22nd, 1889. And at high noon, the cannons were blasted, the guns were fired, and there was this avalanche of humanity of people on horses, wagons, racing toward their land. And those that arrived first were called the Sooners. Now, in our case, before time began, before the foundation of the world, God already placed his name on us. He staked us out. He marked us out as his own. He predestined us. And why did he predestine us? What was his purpose? Verse 5, for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So Paul, here he draws from Greek and Roman practice. Chosen sons, they inherited the blessings of the family. They were considered full sons. And so all the rights and the privileges and the responsibilities of sonship, God marked us out for relationship with the Father from before the foundation of the world through his Son, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That word purpose, it actually means pleasure, good pleasure, satisfaction. The word has warm, personal connotations. And I think the NIV provides a better translation in accordance with his good pleasure and will. That word will, it refers to divine intention. There's a whole bunch of words in this text related to will. Predestined, verses 5 and 11. Will, verses 5, 9 and 11. Purpose, verses 9 and 11. Plan, verse 11. God did something deliberately. And he did it with great pleasure, with delight. 
Before time began, he chose us. He elected us. He predestined us to be his full sons and daughters, to be family. We were sons of disobedience. We were children of wrath. We were sinners. But now, we're sons and daughters of the Father. And we're sons and daughters because God wanted us. The reasons for election and predestination, they're grounded in God's sovereign, gracious, loving nature. They're grounded totally in God. Our election has nothing to do with our merit. It has nothing to do with what we have done. It has nothing to do with where we were born, with our circumstances. There was nothing apart from God that gave his will direction in choosing us, but he has delighted in choosing us, in electing us, in predestining us to be his sons and daughters. And that assures us that God's purposes for us are of the highest good. He finds joy in doing good to us. And that's why Paul just breaks out into praise. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The grace of God, it actually reflects the glory of God. Our adoption is ultimately for his glory. The blessing has come in the beloved, in Christ. And if we are in the beloved, then we are in the Father. Look at John chapter 17, verse 26. Jesus is praying to the Father for his disciples, and this is what he prays. I have made known... I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. So if we are united with Christ, if we are united with Christ, the beloved, we are caught up into the love of the Father, the love that exists between the Father and God the Son. That's profound. That's what Jesus is praying about. May we understand that God the Father is to be praised for predestining us for adoption in his family. When we lived in Sao Paulo, um, the family of churches that we were a part of, they started a ministry to street children. These street children were sometimes on the streets for years. Sometimes they didn't have a home to go back to. Sometimes they did, but wouldn't go home because of problems at home. So the ministry team, they one day found two young boys, seven years of age, Luis Paulo and Pedro. They'd been living on the streets for a number of years. They looked like brothers, they weren't. But the ministry team found them and and took them to the rescue home. Embraced them, showed them love. They went to a doctor, they got into school, started to study. They heard about Jesus. They were discipled in the faith. They came to faith in Jesus. And they started to pray to their heavenly father that they would be adopted into the same family. The ministry team was somewhat concerned about that because how would they guarantee that these two young boys would be adopted into the same family? The bureaucracy around child adoption can be very complicated. And how would this impact their fledgling faith in their good heavenly father? An American couple moved from Germany to Sao Paulo. They had come for business reasons, but they also came wanting to adopt, and they got connected with the rescue home, got to know these two young boys, fell in love with them, would take them off on day trips. They had full intentions of adopting them, but some things had to happen in order for them to be adopted. 
Now, I'll stop right there. What needed to happen for us to be adopted by our Heavenly Father? (laughs) What needed to happen for us to enter into a loving relationship with Him? Verse 7, in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. That word redemption, it denotes liberation from bondage, from imprisonment. The verb tense, it's it's present. We have redemption. So this is a present possession. It's an existing reality. How was our redemption accomplished? Well, there's that phrase, through his blood, and that's infused with meaning. It refers to the payment made for us. Pastor Mike talked about this last week. Christ died for us. He was the price paid. And then you have that phrase, the forgiveness of our trespasses. That phrase is in opposition to the earlier phrase. It means that it explains the earlier phrase. It explains the nature of our redemption. We're freed from slavery to sin and guilt. Our trespasses, every attitude, every act, contrary to the nature of God, covered by the blood of Jesus. Our sins are forgiven because Christ paid the debt. He shed his blood for our redemption. His death was the atoning sacrifice once and for all, for all time. Hallelujah. So according to the riches of his grace, literally, out of the abundance of God's grace, we have been redeemed. God lavished his grace upon us. That word lavish is just an outpouring, an outflow of the grace of God that comes from the depths of God's wisdom and insight. God the Father is to be praised for redeeming us and forgiving all our sins for paying the price for our adoption into his family. So the American couple, they wanted to adopt these boys. One day the paperwork for Luis Paolo came through. Paperwork came through. They went down to the rescue home, picked up Luis Paolo, took him back to their apartment, showed him the apartment where he would live, the room, where he would sleep, the toys that he would play with. And the husband, he took out a teddy bear and he, he said to Luis Paolo, Luis Paolo, I have always wanted to give this teddy bear to my son. Would you be my son? And Luis Paolo was just filled with joy. Yes, I would love to be your son. Just one thing weighing heavy on his heart, his friend Pedro, still back at the rescue home. Would their prayers be answered? Would the dream of this American couple to adopt both boys be realized? Would the obstacles be removed? Let's keep reading Ephesians chapter 1 verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The word mystery, it refers to the disclosure, the revelation of things previously hidden or things known only in part but now made more fully known, which he set forth in Christ. The disclosure of the mystery of God's will, it's found in Christ in his death and resurrection. Verse 10, as a plan for the fullness of time. The word plan, it refers to God's oversight, his overruling. God has time in his hands. He actually stewards it. He manages it. And at exactly the right time in history, Jesus came and died and took our sin upon himself and he was raised from the dead. And he ascended to the Father and now 
lives at the right hand of the Father, reigning over all things. And this happened according to God's good plan. In God's providential overruling of the course of the world, Jesus came. And the consummation of all things will be realized. God will complete his plan. He will unite all things in Christ. That phrase means to sum up all things in Christ. God's saving purposes planned from eternity. They have as their final goal the uniting of all things in Jesus. All of the fragmented and alien pieces of the universe coming together in Christ. Cosmic reconciliation affected in Christ. And so when Paul talks about this, he's going beyond the redeemed people of God to the whole of the created order. Things in heaven and things on earth. In Ephesians, when he talks about things in heaven, he talks about Christ seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. He also talks about principalities and powers. When he talks about things on earth, he talks about the church. And he talks about all uh, people from around the world being united in Christ. Those that have placed their faith in Jesus, that have accepted Christ's sacrifice for them, they are united in Christ. They become one, Jews and Gentiles. And this coming together, this being united in Christ, it's a testimony to the powers of the air, according to Ephesians chapter 3. A testimony of God's intent to restore harmony to the entire universe. And so God the Father is to be praised for revealing to us the mystery of his will. That is to unite all things in Christ. God has lavished his grace upon us by revealing his intention, his purposes. We know where history is going. And if we are in Christ, we know where we are going. Luis Paulo, he had been adopted. Now with his new family. Full son. Six months later, the paperwork for Pedro came through. Luis Paulo went down to that rescue home with his new parents and he went running through the door into the arms of Pedro and said, Pedro, we can be brothers! And the home just exploded with joy. The dream of the American couple being realized, these boys that wandered aimlessly on the streets now adopted, now full sons, brothers, united by their heavenly father. Can you imagine the father's joy in choosing us his delight in orchestrating and unveiling his plan, his pleasure in adopting us as his children, his delight in seeing us as his church, and the celebration that will be ours when we meet with him in glory. Amen. And so if we are followers of Jesus, if we have entrusted ourselves to Jesus, if we have accepted him as our Lord and Savior, then we are not unwanted. We are chosen and wanted. We are not wandering through life aimlessly. We're predestined. We're not abandoned and ashamed. No, we're adopted. We do not walk the streets ridden with guilt. We are forgiven. We are not bound by sin. We are redeemed. We are not unworthy. We are worthy because of Jesus. Not unloved, loved. Not unaccepted, accepted. Not unsure and fearful. We are sure. Not restless, resting in the presence of God. And we can say with Paul, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Amen? Amen. Amen. 
So in verse 2, Paul says to the Ephesians, he greets them with these words, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Why don't you say that to the person next to you? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Say that to your brother or sister and then we'll pray. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, this morning, we are humbled by all that you have accomplished in Jesus. Father, forgive us for moments when we complain, for moments when we look at our circumstances, and we forget, Lord. We forget that we have actually been blessed in Jesus with every spiritual blessing. Thank you for choosing us from before the foundation of the world for holiness. Thank you for predestining us to to be adopted into your family, to be your sons and daughters. Thank you. Thank you for making known to us the mystery of your will. Thank you that you are faithful to accomplish your purposes in our lives. Thank you that you are conforming us to your image and we will be conformed to the image of your Son. Thank you. And so, Lord, may we live in light of this purpose. May we live toward this purpose. May we live with joy, praising you, God, for who you are and for all that you have done. And as we abide in your presence, Lord, may we walk full of your spirit and may this overflow as we share this with those who do not know you. God, open our eyes to those who need you, who walk aimlessly, who struggle, who walk in confusion. Lord, may we share the wonderful news of salvation in you. And so, God, we entrust ourselves to you. We thank you that you are a good shepherd. We thank you that you will lead us. Thank you that you will never leave us. Thank you that you're with us by your spirit. And we pray, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you.